This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 36 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am really thrilled to be joined by one of the most multi-talented and yet understated guys you'll encounter in the film industry, Tom McCarthy. He's an actor, a writer, and a director. This year, he co-wrote with Josh Singer the movie Spotlight, which he also directed, and is now headed to the Academy Awards as a Best Director and Best Original Screenplay Oscar nominee. It's only the fifth film that he's directed, but three of the four others are really good as well. I'm talking about The Station Agent, The Visitor, and Win Win, which helped to make McCarthy one of the most revered members of the indie community in the 21st century. Most people regard his fourth film, The Cobbler, as a misfire, but even that's beginning to be reevaluated by some. McCarthy's resume also includes writing credits for Up. He was part of the team that received the Best Original Screenplay Oscar nomination for that instant classic from Pixar, as well as Million Dollar Arm, a very different sort of film. In terms of his on-screen work, ironically enough, his best-known role is probably as a bad journalist on the terrific television show The Wire. He also acted in a film about journalism, Fair Game, as well as a series of other films for well-known directors, such as Peter Jackson in The Lovely Bones, Clint Eastwood in Flags of Our Fathers, and George Clooney in Good Night and Good Luck. That's not to suggest he can't have fun as well. His credits also include both Meet the Parents and Little Fockers, as well as Pixels, which he took a day off from the set of Spotlight to go and make. But there's no question that McCarthy's best-received work thus far, in any capacity, has come in connection to Spotlight, a film for which he wasn't necessarily an obvious candidate. He was born Catholic, was an altar boy as a kid, studied at Boston College, and his parents are still practicing Catholics. But rather than running from the difficult subject matter of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, he embraced it as an opportunity to highlight the courage of the survivors and the heroism of the journalists who told their story. For his efforts, he has been heavily celebrated. On the screenwriting front, he has been recognized with a Golden Globe nomination, as well as Writers Guild of America, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, LA Film Critics Association, National Society of Film Critics, Gotham Independent Film Awards, and Hollywood Film Awards prizes. Still pending, an Independent Spirit Award nomination, and an Oscar nomination. On the directing front, he's also been heavily celebrated, with nominations for the Golden Globe Award, Critics' Choice Award, and Directors Guild Award. Still pending, an Independent Spirit Award nomination, and yes, an Oscar nomination. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation with Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy, thank you very much for doing this. And Great to be here, Scott. Uh, good to see you again. And to begin with, I just wanted to go back a bit and ask you, where were you born and raised and were movies a big part of your life growing up? 
I was uh, born and raised in New Providence, New Jersey, a small town in New Jersey, uh, and movies were a part of my life in the, you know, uh, probably as much as everyone. I just enjoyed the hell out of them. I remember going to Blue Star Cinema in the Summit Strand, which was a beautiful old movie theater, seeing some really wild movies as a young man. Um, uh, but I don't think I really started, I never considered it a, a career opportunity. I just, you know, the movies were from a faraway place. They were magic. You went, you enjoyed them, and you went home, and you thought about them, and you talked about them. But I never thought about, you know, who actually made the sausage and, and, and what went into that. And it wasn't until much, much later in life after college that right. I started to consider it. What did you think you would end up doing, and what was it that happened, I believe, at Boston College that took you off the path of being a philosophy major. An upstanding citizen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was at, well, I went into Boston College. I started there, which turned out to be a very fortuitous move considering this film. Yes. How it all comes full circle. Uh, considering Cardinals Law's residence was a kitty corner to the university. We used to go over there and play softball. Really? Yeah. And oh, uh, the university now owns uh, Cardinal Law's residence. They sold it as a way of paying off survivors, which... This is a story from yes. down the line. But um, I started there as a business major. And about a year and a half in, I realized my heart wasn't in it. I actually had an accounting professor who pointed out to me that my heart wasn't in it. And uh, <laughs> I switched and became a philosophy major. And that started me on this trajectory in some odd, odd way towards where I am today. I think it started me meeting uh, people uh, who, who thought a little bit more outside the box than I had at that point in my life. And and I became very involved academically for the first time in my life, probably in my second year of college. And, uh, and, and right around that same time, started performing with an improv comedy troupe. And just to cut you off for a second, this was the result of a girlfriend telling you something that you oh, did not know? Scott, Is that right? you have done your I, I try, I try. <laughs> yeah, I was dating a woman at the time. She was a couple years older than me. And obviously, so that made her about 20 years more mature in guy years. <laughs> um, and she she brought it up one day. She said, have you ever considered uh, going and doing something in the theater? And at that point, I hadn't. And it's funny, I grew up loving, I lived in New Jersey, and I would just beg my parents to go into New York to see plays and musicals, specifically musicals. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. But as soon as I left the theater, much like movies, yeah. I, I went home, I put that playbill in my top drawer, and I never thought about it again. <laughs> it just wasn't something that my people did. You right, know? It was not practical. No, career, no, yeah. we just didn't do it. So it wasn't until like you know halfway through college where this woman suggested I audition for a play uh, that I started to consider it. Throughout the rest of college, there was primarily improv or was it theatrical productions or what it was it no it was really improv i thought about trying out for the main stage theater and this wasn't my gig i didn't really understand it mm-hmm. and uh, about that time i auditioned for a comedy troupe uh, called um my mother's fleabag which is the longest running comedy <laughs> troupe at boston college still exists today mm-hmm. and uh, uh fell in with these people and they probably changed my life more than anyone uh, just that experience of writing and performing and having an immediate and sort of really visceral response from the student body audience uh, was incredibly impactful and completely changed my outlook on things. After college, you really kind of went all in on this, right? Yeah, well, it was a little bit more gradual. Yeah, we graduated college and we thought as a lark, some members of the troupe that really got along would start performing. And we sort of moved to Cape Cod and performed for the summer in bars and car shows and farmer's markets. Anywhere people would let us perform, we did. <laughs> and uh, we made just enough money to live off. And uh, and then by the end of the summer, we sort of decided we were getting, uh, we were enjoying it, if not getting good at it. And we decided to relocate. And for some reason, we picked Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
and from there, Chicago? Yeah, I went to, it was in Minnesota for two years in Minneapolis performing with this particular group. Mm-hmm. And then I started to become more interested in the theater. I did one, I had a tiny, tiny role in my first play at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Right, and I thought, yeah. this is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I went back to London. I had studied there in college for a semester. I went back to train a little bit and really started to fall in love with the theater there. And then um, moved to Chicago and I returned to the States and started auditioning for plays. You obviously were pretty good because you got into the Yale School of Drama and were there, I guess, at the same time as Paul Giamatti. And yeah. it's interesting that a lot of the folks that you've cast in your movies, including Peter Dinklage yeah. and others, you really have long histories with. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, um, that was true. I went to the Yale School of Drama, focused primarily on, on acting. Uh, that was my primary study there. But I was also writing and directing for the Yale Cabaret, which is where I started to get the writing directing bug. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I graduated uh, from Yale, from the, from the uh, drama school, I, I came down to New York, and the first play I, I co-wrote and directed uh, was a play with Peter Dinklage uh, called The Killing Act, and that's where we met. I've heard that Sidney Lumet was a mentor of yours. How did that start? Well, uh, after a few years out, I started, you know, I was doing regional theater and performing in some television, and I started writing my first screenplay, The Station Agent. And it was more of an exercise. It was just around that time, I was about 26, 27, I really fell in love with cinema. And I really didn't understand what that was till about that age, which Mm -hmm. was probably late for a lot of filmmakers. Um, But I just started diving in, spending as much time as I could at Film Forum, renting from a few great video stores in the neighborhood uh, where I lived in Manhattan, and just kind of really submerging myself. And uh, I started to write The Station Agent. And I had been writing a little bit for the theater at that time, obviously, but um, I just thought, you know, I'm going to take a crack at my first screenplay. And um, that became a sort of summer pursuit. I actually called my agent and said, I'm going to take the summer off from acting and I'm going to write this uh, screenplay. Uh, and I did. Uh, either t- I, don't know, I don't know what motivated me to think that I should take time off from any type of job at that point because I had absolutely no money. Right. <clears throat> Just blind faith or stupidity. And, uh, and that was uh, the beginning of it all. It's been an interesting balancing act in a sense between acting and writing, directing, right? Yeah. Because... In a sense there, at that point, the writing, directing was something that you had to take a pause on the acting to do. But now the acting sort of enables you to do quirky, independent, non-mainstream stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I started out as an actor, and that was my in, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it afforded me, uh, first of all, a living. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's all connected. Acting, writing, directing, it's all storytelling. It's all I've ever known as a professional, really. Um, but there came a point after The Station Agent that my life, that, that movie kind of shifted my career in, in, in a very specific way. Uh, shortly thereafter, I went to Pixar and was a co-writer on Up, mm-hmm. as you know. And I just started thinking about things differently and started over time committing more and more to the writing and directing. Um, uh, That said, I still had some wonderful opportunities along the way when I was writing to keep acting and as a result work with some really great directors who, uh, and some not so great, (laughs) uh, which gave me a chance to learn. And has part of the decision to keep taking on acting roles been to just work with some great directors? Partly now, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had the opportunity that often in the last three years specifically, but... uh, 
yeah, one, I just love acting. It's fun, but it is great to be inside a process. You know, it's one interesting thing about directing. Other than meeting up at certain points and having discussions, which are very helpful and, and sometimes fruitful and having other directors watch cuts, going to set, you don't really learn a lot from another director. You can a little bit. Well, what's their acumen? What's their approach? That's interesting. But to really understand the work, you've got to be working. You've got to be inside the system. You've got to be working with them. And as an actor, I'm in there through rehearsals, through shooting. You know, I really get to see how this person responds. And it's a completely different relationship from just talking about it or even auditioning for really working with other directors is where you start to learn. And um, it's incredibly useful, right? And I've had a, it's funny, I've had a number of directors slash friends say to me over the years it's something they were envious of because it is, it is insight into process. And we all get better by watching and learning from other processes. Most people who are directors haven't acted. Most people who are actors haven't been directors. Does each make you better at the other? I think so. Being an actor uh, for so long and understanding actors and how they approach and how they work and what's helpful and what's not, uh, I think that certainly guides me in how I interact with actors. And, um, and you know, quite honestly, after I directed a couple of films, I started to think about acting a little bit differently because I've watched a lot of great actors, not only come into audition, but then really wonderful actors that I've worked with and seen their work kind of evolve through rehearsal into shooting into the edit room what was useful what wasn't uh, and it, I think it just gave me a greater insight into the craft and it is a craft sure. and greater um, kind of it almost emboldened me in some way in terms of what to do and what not to do so um, you know I, I do think as I said at the beginning of this the three disciplines acting writing directing mm-hmm. are sort of are incredibly linked, mm-hmm. right? It makes such great sense. It's all storytelling. Totally. How did you get that chance to make your directorial debut? Because that's usually, I think, the hardest climb, just getting that first opportunity. Obviously, you've written a great script, but how did you convince somebody to let you direct it? Well, most people didn't think it was a great script. Really? <laughs> most people thought it was a slow, slow, weird, odd movie uh, about a dwarf living in a train depot, and they couldn't get beyond that. And I always thought it as saw it as uh, you know something with humor and 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 emotion and pathos and a lot of the things I hope the movie turned out to be. But uh, you know, as a first time director peddling that script with uh, at then uh, a no name. Peter Dinklage, right. Bobby Cannavale, even Patricia Clarkson was sort of a, a name in the indie world right. that hadn't really worked much beyond that like she has now. Right. Now she's everywhere. Everyone loves and adores mm-hmm. her. Uh, so it was a tough sell. And I was shopping it for two or three years right. before we finally found uh, an independent producer first time, a guy named Robert May, who wanted to get into the business and has now done some really wonderful things. And he took a chance on me. I'm sure had there been people along the way, and we hear this in instances from Stallone onwards where they say give us your script but let somebody else direct it did you kind of put your foot down and say <laughs> no because I don't think a lot of people thought they wa- they wanted anyone they, want <laughs> they were just looking at that script and saying we don't know what to make but you know I, I had a real one of my dear friends here in LA a wonderful actor Wayne Wilderson we were out recently having a drink and he was sort of you know with the success of Spotlight and the five films now we were reflecting right. we've known each other since college he was right. in the comedy group with me and he said I distinctly remember walking down a street in New York and you pitching me the station agent or talking about it and me thinking well good luck with that one <laughs> Sounds like a winner, uh, and and we were laughing. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, but you know, you never know. So you don't. You just as you're with your friends, you're supportive, and and that one worked out. 
I do, on a personal note, remember being in New Haven, Connecticut with, with my parents. Uh, I guess I was in high school or something, and I dragged them to check it out. And they were also questioning, what is this premise? And then we, we loved Cinema 1234 in New Haven. We, oh, we yeah, enjoyed great it. But, not not uh, there anymore. Not there That's anymore. Gone. Yes, great yes. Movie theater. Yes. And York Square, a lot of those that yeah. played it, I think, are now gone. But a question that that film makes me want to ask you is that male friendship and the idea of sort of artificial families seems to be a recurring theme of your films. We saw it in The Station Agent. You see it, I think, in The Visitor and When Win. And to an extent in Spotlight, where these journalists become like a family and primarily are males. We Obviously, Rachel McAdams is in there, too, as Sasha Pfeiffer. But why do you think that is something that keeps happening in your films? I don't know. Someone should write about it someday. <laughs> Not me. Right. Uh, I try to ignore it. Uh, I don't know. It's definitely something, you know, people coming together, uh, you know, and forming these kind of unlikely bonds and, and what can be accomplished on some level, be that emotionally or personally or professionally. That does interest me, the, the power of connection. Um, it's always interested me, especially from unlikely sources. I mean, I think, you know, certainly in The Station Agent and very much so in The Visitor mm-hmm. with, um, all those characters, those four main characters, the two men and the two women, how they changed each other's lives. And um, certainly with Win-Win, with that young man coming to this family's life. And yeah, I think Spotlight, you know, look, uh, I, Spotlight has its own team, right? Its own family. Uh, and I think one sort of added measure to that or element is the fact that um, it's guided by an outsider, uh, and that's something else I deal yes. with in all my films. Outsiders, yeah. Marty Baron. I would say Richard Jenkins yes. is an outsider. Peter Dinklage was certainly an outsider yeah. in the station agent. Uh, Paul Giamatti, even in his own family, which Coming is part of the reason I made that movie, feels yeah. like an outsider. He feels yeah. disconnected. Yeah. So it's it's our definition of an outsider. Um, but that always interests me. And yes, in this particular case, I think the idea of Marty Baron arriving at the Globe from Miami, uh, a Jewish guy from Miami coming to the most Irish Catholic of cities, <laughs> taking over the iconic newspaper right. and going after arguably the most iconic and powerful institution in Boston at that time, the Catholic Church. That's just a great tale. That's the thing that hooked me. I mean, what we're talking about now, and we can talk about it in the interview and thematically, what I think is really compelling and what seems to be really operating now in terms of the film, mm-hmm. it didn't start there. It really started with this, this, this great bar stool story of this guy coming over, day one, setting his sights on the Catholic Church. And then what transpired? And I heard that, and I'm like, you know, if someone told me that story, my question would be, what happened next? Right. It's like almost a Western. You got it. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. And uh, I don't know. I just found uh, that to be, that's the thing that hooked me. What is it also about the actors that you choose, whether it's Peter Dinklage, who, again, people did not know at the time. He's a dwarf, not somebody that you see often in cinema. Richard Jenkins was sort of this great character actor, but was not getting great opportunities. Paul Giamatti, great character actor, not the anchor of too many movies. Mm -hmm. And then here in this movie, people focus on Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo, but you've got Brian Darcy James in there. You've got people that are sort of outside the box casting. And I just wonder where that approach comes from, if you can figure it out. Well, it's always just the right actor. Who's the most right person? That's always what I did. And some of it was just, I don't know, maybe naivete to the marketplace. But keep in mind, I purposely kept the budgets of my first three or four films down Mm -hmm. so I could have creative control and and free license when it came to things like casting Mm -hmm. and story. 
people are like, well, he's only spending $4 million. Let him do what he wants. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, and that's true. Now, with Spotlight, I knew I needed a bigger budget. And for some reason, because it was something about it just, you know, it's just a feel. Sometimes it's tough to really articulate what goes into the process mm-hmm. of these things. And I think I just instantly felt like, oh, we're going to be able to cast up with this. I'm going to be able to go get the right actors. Mm-hmm. And then, keep in mind, it's also by far the largest cast I've ever had. It's right. a enormous cast sure and so i was able to really balance some really well-known household even star names uh with actors people had never seen before and and then a lot of like really wonderful journeyman actors who are some of some of the i think the best actors working today and that probably fall under the umbrella of character actor right, right? right. you you know uh you read brian darcy james neil huff uh, paul guilfoyle jamie sheridan uh billy crudup who i think is like one of these amazing actors who can be a leading man and completely right. disappear into character these great actors so it was a it was one of the great um challenges and, and one of the most enjoyable parts about putting this movie together, this enormous cast. How come you've never cast yourself in one of your movies? <laughs> I have too much respect for for the work. And when I'm writing and directing, uh, I just feel like I'm vibrating in a very specific way. To try to capture that on screen, I think, would be a big mistake. This was probably one of those stories I would have, right? It's a bunch of pasty, middle-aged white guys <laughs> in Boston, right? Which was pretty much the scene in Boston at this particular time. Right. And uh, if there was ever a way to wedge myself into a screenplay, this was it, or into a film. Uh, and there was actually one part we were having trouble casting, and, and my, even my co-writer and one of my producers was saying, just do it. Like, you're here. You gotta you tell know, us which you, part. Uh, I can't tell you, you can't that. Tell- no, I wouldn't want to. Um, and, um, and I thought about it. It wasn't one of the major right, right, trolls. Right, right. It was one of the other, uh, it was a newspaper man, one of the other newspaper men. And uh, I really did think about it. But, um, you know, I'm just, I'm so dialed in when I've gone, when I'm writing and directing that uh, just to step out of that, even for a moment, I just feel like with movies like Spotlight, you can't have a missed moment. Right. And I wouldn't trust anybody else to be at that monitor but me right. or to be just out off to the camera, which I am a lot watching, but me. And um, just because uh, there's something about, and not just that, uh, that by no means does that mean I'm the smartest guy in the room. It just means there's a continuity of vision yeah. which needs to be um, protected. And I think uh, I have I just have too much respect for that, and quite honestly, respect for what great actors do. You know, great actors have to remain on set for weeks and months at a time, uh, and be incredibly focused the entire time, and that takes a lot of a lot of energy. Sure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I want to ask you about perhaps your most well-known acting role, which is in some ways relevant to yeah. Spotlight, and that is as the reviled Scott Templeton on The Wire. And first of all, is it true there were two Tom McCarthy's on the project? Yeah. That's There's bizarre. a wonderful actor. How did you know that? There's a wonderful actor out of Philadelphia, Tom McCarthy. He's got a few years on me, and he's a really terrific guy. And, and uh, we met. He came up to me the first day. He's like, you're the other Tom McCarthy. <laughs> Growled at me. Right. Uh, but turned out to be a terrific guy. And uh, I think he just, I actually just recently received one of my residual checks for a movie and turned it back to my agent. So you know he's a good guy. Um, yeah, but there are. And that was a, a terrific experience, needless to say. The Wire, everybody today knows, is one of the if not the best TV shows of the modern day. Was that the sense even while it was happening, though? Um, yeah, I joined season five, and it was pretty well known. What's really interesting about that show is it received no awards. <laughs> it had It had so much critical appraise, no awards. You know, that's something really interesting culturally and socially to look at. But people in the know worship that. Certainly the critics did in its audience, which at that point, I feel like it's one of those shows that didn't really catch on until it was until it had run its courses in DVD. Right. People were watching it then. Binged it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And uh, and man, what a great, great show. Uh, But by the time I had joined it, it was uh, I was you know, the reputation was pretty well known, right? So you'd gone out for it, though, earlier on, right? I did. I think I went in on season one for, like, a couple of the roles, of the, maybe the mayor, Carcetti, or one of those guys, and didn't get it. You know, I was, and, uh, and then I was... I uh, think I was editing The Visitor. I just finished shooting when uh, they reached out and just offered me this role, uh, which I was very uh, touched by. And and at first, my instinct was to turn it down because I'm not a great multitasker. Uh, and I was like, I'm editing, I think, after. And, and, and I remember David Simon called me directly uh, and said, you know, I really think you should do this. I think this role is really right for you. And at that point, I didn't know what the role was. What he was saying is the biggest weasel in the world is <laughs> distinctly right for you, Tom. But did uh, you know at the beginning that even when you did sign on to do it, that yes, this guy ends up being a weasel and a fabulist and all this stuff, but did they shield that information from you for a while? Yes, yeah. until, he, until his true colors were revealed. <laughs> I remember one day I came into the uh, makeup trailer and they were just like, ooh, you're bad. You're bad. I was like, am I? How bad? They're like, pretty bad. And Because everyone on staff would get the, the script at the same time. Right. Sometimes I wouldn't get it until I was down there right. the next episode and they were already laughing about it. And and uh, man, it was really fun. It's a great experience as an actor. Uh, it was my really, uh, to see a, a kind of character kind of roll out like that, you know, but I, I, I always refer to that as a kind of plug and play experience because the show was so well run at that point and so well written and so well acted and I just had to walk down and put on my costume and step in sure. and uh, it really felt that easy and I would be editing and I'd come down for a couple of days. Creatively, it was like a really wonderful time in my life because I knew I was a part of something special. I loved the work. I loved the people down there and I was editing a movie that I was very happy with. So uh, it was just a very special uh, creative moment in my career. And the connection, if we can call it that, to Spotlight is that here, David Simons, an ex-Baltimore Sun reporter, you guys, from what I understand, spent a lot of time in the Baltimore Sun newsroom. You became, I think, a bigger news junkie through having done this. Is that all correct? That's all correct, yeah. Um, There's probably a lot of connections if you continue to draw them. Scott (laughs) Templeton won a Pulitzer for his work, as did the Spotlight team. Um, But I think, most importantly... 
I did. I learned a lot. Like as an actor, when you take on a role like that, you spend time with journalists. You tour the sun. You really get a chance to see what it's like or get some, at least some understanding of what it's like to be a journalist um, through the research. But also just spending time with David and Bill Sorzy and some of the other wonderful writers who were journalists on that show or, or, you know, um, that was incredibly informative. You know, especially David, because he just has this real kind of like, you know, he just loves it. He loves it like uh, like cinephiles love movies. He loves journalism. He loves print. He loves paper. He loves ink. He loves fact. He loves story. He loves he loves to get, you know, he's just all about it. And you just you, you know, look, I never thought at that point I would be ultimately uh, writing and directing a movie about journalism. Right. But boy, did it inform me when I revisited it some eight years later. And yet when Spotlight first crossed your radar, it was a no. It was a no, yeah. Why was that? Uh, remember, I mentioned many times now, I'm not a great multitasker. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think I was working on win-win, and uh, Nicole Rockland reached out to me through my agent, one of our producers, and said, you know, kind of pitch me on the story, and it was so overwhelming. And I had a good sense of the story, having been raised Catholic, having gone to school in yes. Boston, having had a, you know, um, how big the story was. And at that point, I just couldn't wrap my head mm -hmm. around it. And... Uh, Respectfully, so as not to like uh, sort of, you know, sometimes these discussions go on forever and then you say no. I just thought I can't think about this right now. I'm sorry, but good luck. Um, they went away at that point. Her, her and her partner, uh, Bly Faust, went away for a year and tried with another writer. It didn't work out. In that time, they teamed with Steve Golden and Michael Sugar uh, at Anonymous uh, Content. And um, then they came back to me a year later when I had kind of a clear head. And thank goodness they did. Now, in the interim, you had also done a few adventurous things. One of them, I believe, was directing the original pilot of yeah, Game, Game of, of Thrones. Thrones. Yes. Now, directing for TV versus directing for film, the role of the director is, is pretty different, isn't it? Yeah. And is that why you did not continue with Game of Thrones beyond the pilot? No, I mean, it, you know, to be honest, it didn't go that well. Our pilot wasn't that great. Uh, I think there was a lot of reasons for that. And some of it, certainly not, <laughs> some of it's beyond uh, any one creative control. It was certainly a lesson in TV to me and how it's run and how it can work and how it cannot work. But what happened was after we shot the pilot, I went right into win-win. Uh, almost, I, I think I arrived back and two weeks later was in pre-production. They made a lot of changes including some cast fell out, some and some they replaced so there was a combination there and I think Story David and Dan being their first show I had a chance to look at the material and reconsider how they wanted to approach it and I think they were urged in that direction so there were a lot of bits that went into it um, and a lot of it happened after I left so uh, it was it was interesting still in a lot of ways as always as with all these experiences you learn you take away things you learn and last thing before we really hone in on Spotlight is that, and, and perhaps this was also a learning experience in some way, but how would you characterize the experience and the post-release experience of The Cobbler? <laughs> That's a big last question. <laughs> it's, it's a tough thing to talk about in one, in one question, but I, I'm still very fond of that movie. Um, I think one thing I learned about it, I made it with some people, specifically our financiers on that film, Voltage, uh, did not have a good experience with them. I think creatively that can impact the work quite a bit. Um, uh, but I'm very, I was still very proud of the work. Uh, I think the release could have been handled a lot better. I think if it was, I think the movie might have been received a lot better. Mm -hmm. I still stand by it. I've had a lot of people who have come up to me. It's done very well on Netflix. Right. Um, 
I'm very proud of Adam's work and everybody's work in that movie. Because that's um, another one of, the, of sort of a, an old friend who you partnered with, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was just... Who, with Adam? Right. No, I didn't or really you had know, not know I did not I know Adam Sandler at all. Really? Yeah, first time I met him and worked with him. And an amazing guy and I think a really good actor. And I know the press loves to go after him, but all the people who have worked with him that I've met, yeah, other directors like are all like, I, they don't understand it. Right. Um, something about his success and his approach <laughs> that people, I think, take for granted because I don't know a harder working man in Hollywood. Right. And a more generous and caring man. Interesting. Um, so it is really interesting, yeah. actually. But I'm really proud of that movie. I learned a lot from that movie. I think Spotlight's a better movie because of it, because it was the first time I made movies in back-to-back years. Uh, certainly, it was a bit of a uh, you know a creative roller coaster in how the movie was received. But in some ways, uh, it was incredibly liberating. Yeah. Because I thought, all right, this is it. And it's you not know, the world didn't end. Then no, when you it, keep going. Yeah. And our job is to tell stories, take chances, and... And um, never apologize for them. And that's one thing I refuse to do. I stand by that movie. I had so many people come up to me, talk to me about that movie. And guess what? They haven't seen it. Right. So I'm like, go watch it. (laughs) Right, right. right. And uh, and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. I've made it with the same team that I've made my other five movies. So uh, uh, I'm I'm very proud of it. And I, I do think ultimately I know for a fact which I think is really interesting, it made Spotlight a better movie. Because one thing about directing, uh, for the most part, is usually there's a couple of years between projects. Muscle memory, right? The things you do well and don't do well. Um, Because they were so tightly, um, in terms of schedule, they were right up against each other, I think I learned a lot. And, you know, look, I'm five films in, so... You know, being on stage the other night with uh, some of those wonderful directors, uh, I feel like I still got a lot of movies to make before I know what I'm doing. You mentioned the fact that you were born Catholic, you were an altar boy, went to Boston College. Parents, I believe, are still observant to some extent. Yeah. Did that give you any pause in taking on Spotlight? No, no pause at all. I mean, you know, I did one of the first conversations I had before I agreed to even do the projects. I know it would shortly thereafter be announced in the press was I went out. I drove out to New Jersey from New York where I live and had a conversation with my parents uh, because they are devout Catholics. My father has since passed away. Uh, but I wanted them to understand what I was doing and why and know that it would they would hear about it and um, know that a lot of people I know who are still devout and committed Catholics would hear about it and want to know. And it's quite honestly exactly why I felt like I was the right person to do it because I had a, a very much a connection and a respect and uh, an understanding of what it means to be a Catholic and and um, and also an understanding of how much good the Catholic community does. So uh, I think that's sort of, even though I'm really not as connected to the church as I once was, uh, I still, I think it allowed me to kind of approach this uh, material w- with just the right amount of empathy and grace um, which were the, exactly the words I used for my father when I said I would I was going to do this project. Um, uh, so that was, uh, I think it was really, for me, a, a toehold into the material. The material was basically when you signed on that Rockland and Faust, I think, had bought the rights to the life stories of the journalist, but there wasn't a script in place, right? And you decided, and I'd like to know why, to, from what I understand, recruit Josh Singer to be your partner in this. Yeah. Why did you do that? Did you guys know each other, and why did no, that make we didn't. a difference? Um, well, when they reapproached me the second time with the idea of directing this movie, you're right. They saw it. They had a very, you know, sense of this could be a great newspaper story, a great investigative journalism story. That was their take, and I think they were right. And uh, I'm st- I will forever be thankful to them for bringing me this project. But at that point, I knew it was a bigger story than that, and there was so much information involved. And honestly, I couldn't. I was writing on something else, and I said, "Let's maybe I'll bring on another writer. I'll oversee him, and then I'll direct it." That was good enough for them. I brought on, I met a bunch of writers. I clicked with Josh. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I just thought he was just coming off a journalism film. He'd written The Fifth Estate. Mm-hmm. He had a really deep understanding of journalism. He had a law degree uh, from Harvard. He was a smart guy. And I thought uh, he just seemed right. I just clicked with him personally, which is important. So um, I was going to have Josh write. Now, what happened, we had a number of conversations. And the first time Josh went up to Boston, I went up with him. Um, because I wanted to be in on those initial meetings, so mm-hmm. I had a sense of character and could mm-hmm. kind of, I want to make sure we got off on the right step, i.e. the same step. And uh, it was during that first four or five days in Boston, interviewing primarily the reporters and editors depicted in the film, that we that I, we just started to get really excited about the project. And, and, and immediately it started to open up, and we just... Uh, uh, and then our back and forth, where you could just feel our energy. We were very different in some ways and very similar, and we were just clicking. We were a good team. And that made sense. And, I, I, you know, we would go from interview to interview to interview them back to the hotel and have a drink and dinner and talk and do notes all night and get up early in the morning and do the same thing. And I was like, boy, it felt very quickly like it was our investigation. And something about that energy, after we had finished that first visit, I called Josh and I said, if you don't mind, I'm going to put my other project aside mm-hmm. and I'm going to come on this and write it with you. And he was excited about that. Well, it's interesting because essentially you guys bonded while doing a form of investigative journalism yeah. about investigative journalists who had bonded. Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing that happened to us was there was no source material, right? right. Everyone knows what they reported on, but no one knows how they got there. Mm-hmm. And this was the story of the investigation. Ultimately, I think it's what makes it such an entertaining and compelling story, right? Because it's really focused on that investigation. And it's a great in on the movie that then, of course, takes on much larger themes. But you're right. I think because there was no source material, we had to do the work hundreds of hours of interviews and research and emails and we had to build our own story and one not only did it provide uh, us really understanding the story from the inside out in depthly sort of a, a truly in-depth understanding of the material but we also got a sense of what that means we have not you know not me or nor Josh had ever been a reporter, right? This gave us a sense of what that yeah, means. Yeah. Even the kind of buzz when we were discovering things along the way, and we're like, whoa, this is new. This is what... Right. Some and, stuff the journalists themselves have missed. Yeah, really. Yeah. To some extent, yes. And so that was really exciting. When along the line did financing come together, and was it a big challenge? Yes, it's always a challenge. <laughs> I mean, when you're making right. a movie like this, that uh, you know uh, isn't sort of a, a genre film or mm-hmm. a superhero movie or something that really fits into their model right now. It's very difficult to get to the screen. That said, we had a lot going for us. By the time we started going out, we had a really good screenplay. We had a lot of interest in it. We started to assemble a really great cast. And you know, I can't say enough about Open Road, uh, the studio who's distributing the movie. They were from day one very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of other sort of more established studios also who we talked to. Um, we even started to go down the road with DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. But Open Road sort of won out. There were just uh, Tom uh, Ortenberg uh, and his crew were just so uh, aggressive in it. Peter Lawson at the time, too, were just so aggressive in, in being a part of this story. And, and uh, they allowed us to make exactly the movie we wanted to make. And I bring that up not just to give them props yeah, and to yeah. be nice, but as an artist, when you find a studio who's really willing to understand exactly the movie you want to make, and realize it's a big gamble, because it is, mm-hmm. and take that risk with you and support you, man, you don't forget that. So this was the first time you directed a film that's based on a true story entirely, right? And some scenes, I know other creative people like David Simon have remarked upon the fact that 
there are a lot of pitfalls with that, especially in the journalism subgenre. I think the one that he's pointed out that impressed him so much is the scene where the journalists are basically discovering and creating the database of the priests. Because when you read that on paper, it doesn't sound that riveting, and yet it plays exactly the opposite of that. It's very riveting. Did you at any point fear that it's not going to translate in the way that you imagine? Yeah, of course. I worry about it every day. Uh, I mean, that's what you worry about as a director. And and I think I had great concern about how to make it cinematic, how to make it compelling, how to engage the audience. But look, Scott, I think where we got early on with this was we we started to really appreciate the craft of good investigative journalism. And like any craft... It's interesting when you commit to it and when you lean. So we leaned into that. Mm-hmm. We kind of doubled down on that. That was our big bet. Is this interesting? And and uh, I think it is. And and that and and I think watching uh, smart, committed, engaged professionals do their job and do it well in pursuit of not money, but truth right. and justice. That's incredible. And I think that's what sets this story apart from a lot of other stories. And I think it's what ultimately makes heroes of some very human people, the journalists and editors involved in the story. And not to mention the survivors. Totally. Right? So you have this whole other you have this whole other element of the story with these survivors who for the first time are brave enough to come out and tell their story and tell it to the Boston Globe. Go on the record. I mean, that takes guts. Right. And I think that was a really uh, exciting and engaging part of the process, conducting those interviews and connecting with those men. You mentioned the professionals at work. That was really the common thread through the work of Howard Hawks, right? And yeah. he made, I believe, yeah. His Girl Friday, right? Which was another of these yeah. journalism yeah. professionals. It was a different tone, but it's it's kind of this idea that there is worth and something interesting about any person who's on a quest I think so, you know, and I think that that's the great point there. Because I think, well, ultimately, the journalists are our heroes. Why? Because they're citizens. They're average citizens. They're working. You don't become a journalist to get rich or famous. You, you become a journalist because you care. Mm-hmm. Because you care about the truth. You care about social justice. You care about change. And, and you want to affect that on some level. Well, I think that's why this movie has really connected with audiences right now. Because they're the particular heroes in this story. But what it speaks to is the power of uh, committing uh, to work and to change and, and watching what can... You know, this was a local story right. in Boston. Right. World impact. is still happening today, as you well know, which we should talk well, about. Well, that's the next question. Right. But I think what's important is people are realizing that, that, hey, we can make change. Right, you can. And good difference. journalism is one tool to do that. It's one really important tool, not only to, to change, but to our democracy, right. right? So we shouldn't gloss over that. It's essential, and we should continue to support it and figure out a way to make sure we never lose it. Um, but ultimately, I think that's why it's a sort of a wake-up call to people like, hey, accountability, transparency, and doing your part. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, if we all do that in some small way, we can affect change. So let's talk about the impact as we wind down here. I mean, you make a film. It's an indie film. Yeah. You know, it could just as easily have under circumstances that went a little differently, been lost altogether. And yet, talk about just in the last week, there's been some news out of the Vatican, there's been a town hall in L.A., and there's, even right here at the Santa Barbara Film Festival where we're sitting down, been one of many examples of somebody speaking about how it's impacted their own ability to kind of reflect on their life. Can you talk about those things? Yeah, I mean, 
you're right. You know, you say it's an independent movie. I've made real independent movies. This feels like we had a little right, bit more, right, that, right, a little right. bit more money. We had some big stars, and 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 obviously, it's connected both critically and and done well at the box office. And we have six Oscar nominations. It's all mm-hmm. super exciting, right? It really is uh, incredibly exciting. But in the last sort of month, what we've seen is how it started to cross over, how it's really started to have a social impact, right? And specifically, um, this week with the Vatican announcing it, they were going to screen the movie for their council which is a council put together by Pope Francis for the protection of minors. And, uh, you know, when you realize that, and then just today in the New York Times, there was an op-ed citing that they were screening the spotlight for the council and also bringing up the uh, Peter Saunders, who is a survivor who sits on that council, one of two survivors who's very outspoken and is basically saying, hey, they're not doing enough. We need to do more faster. We need to make sure that no child is being harmed, and that it needs it needs to be a more of a sense of urgency, more sense of action, more sense of transparency on this issue. And they're removing him from that council. So what does that say? It says the church is up to some of its same old tricks. Mm-hmm. They're talking a big game, but they're not moving fast enough. Mm-hmm. I think Peter said in a quote, which I thought was really telling, that when he was pushing the council, they finally said, hey, you have to calm down. Rome wasn't built in a day. And he said, that might be so, but a child can be raped in five seconds. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that, that's an incredibly eloquent man mm-hmm. who has a real understanding of what's happening mm-hmm. here. And, I, and so, you know, now that we're in that discussion, it's incredibly rewarding. <laughs> and in the season of awards, uh, it really puts things into perspective mm-hmm. when you're a part of that discussion, of that dialogue. And it's um, honestly, when I read that this morning, when I woke up and read the New York Times op-ed, I, it was almost humbling. I thought, wow, this is... You know, way back when, way back when, this is why you get involved in this. You think, wow, if I can make some impact through art and the fact that not every movie's built that way. Some movies should be just for entertainment. Mm-hmm. When you have the, occasionally have the opportunity with a movie that can be both entertaining and really start to uh, engage in a public dialogue, it's incredibly gratifying and it's really exciting. Um, you know, we did a screening for the survivors the other night. Uh, in um, here in LA with Phil Saviano was there on the panel who's depicted in the movie yeah. played by Neil Huff Richard Sipe was there who's played by Richard Jenkins uh, and it was just so exciting to hear these stories and to hear how the movie is now not just about clerical sexual abuse but there was someone there representing an organization that deals with institutional abuse mm-hmm. and you're like okay now we're now we're talking now we're getting to the broader themes of the movie which is accountability which is uh, transparency, which is personal responsibility. What's my part in this? All of us should be saying, what's my part in this? Mm-hmm. And, and, and whatever that illness is in society, we all can have some effect. And I think, you know, that's when a movie, going back to your, what hooked me on the story, it's a good journalism story, it's about so much more than that. And that's really the exciting thing about projects like this. They start to operate both thematically and how they engage with an audience on such a bigger level than you initially envisioned. I can't think of a better reason to do what we do close this out, bringing it back to yourself. You are now a Best Director nominee, a Best Original Screenplay nominee. So personally, you've been recognized a lot for this work, and I imagine it opens up opportunities to do different scales and sizes of things. You know, anything that probably was harder before is going to be a little less hard now that this has happened. And I just wonder for you, what is next? Are you still a part-time actor, part-time writer-director, or are you going to focus entirely on one thing? What's the future? <laughs> well, you make it sound bad when you say part-time. Uh, that sounds good to me. It means I have off time. Right. Uh, no, you know, look, it really ha- I don't think it really will change anything. Because every story I've told, I've wanted to tell, and that's always been my M.O., just 
follow what makes me curious. For the most part, that's been writing and directing over the last 10 years. But uh, occasionally I could do an acting job when I have the time, which I love doing. But, you know, in terms of what I pursue after this, it'll just have to be what I get excited about. And not to feel like I've got to do any, go be on any specific track. I think it's always got to, for me, it always has to be about the material, how I connect with it. As you know, it's a long journey with these movies. You know, I've been talking about this movie for five months. You know, that's a long time to be talking about anything. I've been there with you. I'm yeah, the guy that's asking I, I you to know, talk about it. I know, I know, I know. Really, I spend more time with you than my wife right now. Uh, and that's a problem, Scott. Yes, yes. No, uh, it is. It's a long journey. So I think if you're going to go down that road, you really better be engaged with the material. You know, I don't think you should ever do it. Not that there's nothing wrong with making a buck. Uh, but, you know, I think you've really got to be engaged with the material and, and and that's always sort of been my M.O. with approaching work. And I, I've always felt like if I find something I'm really excited about, that I will somehow figure out a way to get it to the screen. And um, so far, that's worked. Well, thank you so much for the movies and for this. And very excited to see what you do next. Yeah, it's been a nice chat. Thanks. Thank you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.